Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. If you have your bulletins or your Bibles, take those out. We're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 4 today. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, there's an outline in your Bible and uh, the Bible app as well. You can uh, follow the notes, just go to the menu and go to the events section and you'll see our service. Uh, We celebrate our nation's birthday and it's common to begin thinking about traditions whenever you celebrate something, right? So uh, if you celebrate a birthday, there's usually a cake involved, hopefully with multiple layers and whipped cream frosting. Strawberry cake, if you're taking notes, whipped cream frosting. That's what I like. Right? That's a tradition. And then there's this tradition where you have kids, and maybe adults, blow out candles. Can we stop and think how just weird this is? That before we eat this beautiful strawberry cake with multiple layers and whipped cream frosting, we're going to have a kid spit all over that thing. And then we just serve it around like it's normal, right? So on the 4th of July, we have traditions, right? We have the traditions of fireworks, right? How many of you are going to stay up for fireworks? How many of you are going to be in a dead sleep by the time they go off tonight? Amen? All right. Historians believe that fireworks were originally developed in... Anybody want to guess what country? Oh, my goodness. You guys are ready. China in the 2nd century B.C. The first firecrackers were these bamboo stalks that when they were thrown into a fire, they would explode with a big bang because of the overheating of the hollow air pockets in the bamboo. Legend has it that Captain John Smith set off the first fireworks display in the American colonies in Jamestown, Virginia in 1608. He and others used the fireworks to celebrate special events, and then they were used on the very first, of course, 4th of July in 1776. For every great tradition, there's a really weird tradition, wouldn't you say? So there's another tradition on the 4th of July. Uh, It might not be as widespread as fireworks or barbecue, but it's baffling enough to have gained a reputation for seriously confusing outsiders, perhaps. And that is this, the lobster races. Yes, this is a thing. There's an annual event in the city of Bar Harbor in Maine, in which a handful of crustaceans, a lot of them are sponsored by local businesses. John, you could have a Good Vibrations lobster in the race. We could have a First Christian Church lobster, right? And you would sponsor these lobsters, these crustaceans, and they would race against one another in multiple heats throughout the day. You could put $1 bets on the lobster of, their cho- of your choice, and then you'd cheer for their favorite ones to be slowly make it across the finish line. I mean, they don't move that fast, right? It's a little weird. I'm not saying I would totally not be interested in that, but it's a little weird. Uh, Tradition, the definition of a tradition is this. The transmission of customs or beliefs from one generation to the next. Or the fact of being passed on in this way. That's a tradition. So oftentimes we think of traditions as things we do or see or experience... Paul talks about a different kind of tradition in Ephesians chapter 4. Because as, as, as silly as it might be to gather around and watch lobsters race who knows how far and, and place dollar bets on it, um, that's a tradition they hold dear there. 
there's traditions that we have when we interact with one another. And the traditions that we have are not just things that we see or experience or do, but often what we believe and how we behave. How many of you, um, um, as you were getting older, you found yourself just acting more and more like your parents? Right? Oh, right here, right? (laughs) She got you, Pat, right? (laughs) The older you get, you start doing things. I remember a few years ago, I was with Libby at my parents' house in Southern California, and uh, we were sitting on the couch, and I just picked up the paper because it was next to me, and we were sitting there, and then I crossed my legs, and I put my, my glasses up on here or down. I think it was down below so I could read the paper, and I looked over, and my dad was doing the exact same thing. <laughs> Traditions are passed down. Sometimes just the way we behave. Sometimes just the way, the things that we believe. And so Paul expresses to us here in Ephesians chapter 4 that there's some of these beliefs and behaviors that we have that we shouldn't pass to the next generation. That we just shouldn't pass. And there's others that we need to adopt as new traditions as followers of Jesus Christ, and those are the ones we want to embrace. Those are the ones we want to take hold to in our life. And so today he begins with this presence that we're going to go out with the old and in with the new. Everyone say those words. Ready, begin. Out with the old and in with the new. Paul describes that there's traditions where there's ways of us behaving and things that we believe that should not be passed to the next generation. Paul is in uh, prison while he writes this letter to the Ephesians, and he does so with a lot of beauty. If you read those first two or three chapters again, you'll see that he describes the beauty and the the majesty of the gospel. And Paul, uh, when he writes and he talks about the gospel, does so in such poetic fashion. And he talks about how our lives are a part of the gospel story. And so we've talked about this before. The first three chapters are all about the gospel and the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. And then the second three chapters, four, five, and six, there are, uh, it's about how the gospel is impacted in our lives. Check this out. In the first three chapters, there are two commands given by Paul to believers. There's only two commands. Because much of it is describing the gospel. And then when you get to four, five, and six... Take a guess how many commands he gives us. 60 commands. So the first three chapters, there's only two commands. It's really about understanding the gospel, understanding what Jesus did on the cross, embracing the truth for ourselves, and then four, five, and six, four, five, and six, as you've embraced the gospel, here's everything your life should look like. 60 commands altogether. So the gospel story, chapters one, two, and three, should affect every part of of our story. We've begun with this premise in every single discussion through the book of Ephesians, and that's this. If the gospel doesn't impact your relationships, you are living an incomplete version of the gospel. Paul calls us to live for something much bigger than ourselves, and if what we believe about the gospel is true, there are some behaviors in our life that should not be passed on. There are some beliefs in our life that we should not put on. We should actually take them off. And so Paul first discusses the old. He talks about the old. Uh, Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at verse 17, 18, and 19. 
So grab your Bibles, grab the outline, 17, 18, and 19, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says this, I tell you this, and I insist it, insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He says, I tell you, and I insist you shouldn't live like you used to live anymore. Verse 18, because they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to the sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now, if you remember how Paul begins Ephesians chapter 4, he begins with this urging for us to walk worthy of the high calling of Jesus. And because of the high calling, we need to live differently than those without Jesus. So, the old here, as it's described in other translations, is how Paul describes the way we think and behave before Christ. Okay? Now, some of us came to faith at an early age. I was eight or nine years old when I was baptized in a river on India on a trip back home, and I remember uh, my dad talking to me about what it meant to follow Jesus. And that day there was going to be baptisms. I remember wanting to put my faith and trust in Jesus, so I did so, and we got baptized in an old, stinky, dirty Indian river when I was eight years old. And the ironic thing is this, I went into it dirty, and I came out clean. Right? Isn't that the beauty of the gospel? Now, some of us have experienced that at a young age. Some of us, when we're older, some of us, when, we're, uh, when we've already had a career, maybe already have kids. What Paul is describing is a life before Christ. So, what did your life look like before Jesus? This is what he's going to talk about. This is the old, before Jesus. We're not talking about a specific person necessarily, but we're talking about what it looks like before Jesus Christ. There's five things that Paul describes to us in what it looks like to be uh, in your life before Jesus Christ. He says this, first of all, their understanding is darkened. Look at verse 18 again. Verse 18 says this, they are darkened in their understanding. So their understanding is darkened Because God is light, right? They are living in darkness, yet God is light. So, have you ever had to try to have a spiritual discussion with someone who has not embraced Jesus Christ? Yeah, it can be very difficult. It can be almost frustrating because their understanding is darkened. Paul describes the life of a person before they come to Christ, and he says, this is what it looks like before Christ. First of all, your understanding is darkened. Secondly, uh, you are separated from God. This is the, the, the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus Christ would come down. He would be near to us because we have been separated. Look at verse 18 again. He says this, uh, they are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, Right? So when we're separated from God, there's no salvation. And Jesus came that we might have life. It's not just that without Jesus, life is hard and with, with uh, Jesus, life is easy. It's not that without life, without Jesus, life is bad and with Jesus, life is good. Without Jesus, life is separate from God. And with him is eternal life. That's what the Bible teaches. So their understanding is darkened. They're separated from God. 
Here's thirdly, before Jesus, their hearts are hardened. That means it's hard to hear from God. It's hard to sense his leading. It's hard to sense his guiding. You, uh, you're not able to hear from God. He goes on to say in verse 19, they have lost their sensitivity. They've lost their sensitivity. What does this mean? This means this. They're not ashamed of their sin anymore. Jeremiah said it this way. My people have lost their ability to blush. In other words, the sin is so commonplace for them that it's hard to blush. You can see sin. You can hear it. You can, in fact, uh, get involved in it. And it gets to the point where you have lost your sensitivity because it just becomes commonplace. There's other scriptures that said they wear their, their sin around their neck like a garment. This is what he's talking about. This is your life before Jesus. He goes on to say, finally, they have no self-control. Look at verse 19 again. It says this, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. There's no self-control. Anything they have is not enough. They always want more. They always want to chase the next experience. They always want to indulge themselves. These are the characteristics of what it's like before God. Your understanding is darkened. You don't have a sense. There's no wisdom in your life. Uh, You're separate from God. Your hearts are hardened. You've lost sensitivity to sin. And there is no self-control in your life. And when this happens, Paul is painting the picture, this is what your life is like before Jesus. Aren't you glad that's in the past, by the way? Well, let me say this. It should be in the past, right? All of these things should be in the past. This last week, I was able to sit down with uh, Ryan. Ryan's in the back over there. Ryan, wave at us, bud. He's right there in the back. Ryan's going to get baptized next Sunday. And we were talking. I know that deserves a cheer, right? Ryan's going to get baptized next Sunday. And uh, last Wednesday we sat down and I said, Ryan, I want you to start thinking about your life before Jesus and what it's like after Jesus. So he's been writing about it. He's been sketching out what his life is like before Jesus and after. We're going to hear about that next Sunday. We're going to be able to celebrate with him new life in, through baptism because that's what happens when Jesus comes in the picture. You're no longer darkened. You're no longer separated. Your hearts all of a sudden become soft. You begin to cry and weep over your sin because you want to be repentant. You're you're sensitive to sin. You want to stay away from it as long as possible. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes in your life, and you start setting boundaries in your life. That's what the old is. Paul goes on to explain the new. The old is followed up with, or the old is followed up with the new. All right, let's look at verse 20. So he goes and he explains the old life, and he says this. Verse 20, that, however is not the way of life you've learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off, everyone say put off, your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on, everyone say put on, The new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We're going to unpack this for a second. We're called to put off our old self. 
in order to be made new in the attitude of our minds and the holiness that Jesus has called us to. So, this is about how we approach our relationships. What are the values that you have in a relationship? Do you value honesty? Do you value integrity? Do you value selfishness? Do you value greed? Do you value, what do you value? So, Paul explains to us what we should value, and it helps chart the course of our relationships. He begins with this premise, though, that we were taught the truth about Jesus Christ not to be merely informed, but to be transformed. I'd love for this to penetrate your hearts this morning. The reason we come to church, the reason we gather around Scripture, by the way, we're a church that simply believes in the Bible. We believe that the Bible is God's preserved word. We believe that it changes lives. We believe that it's alive and new, that it's relevant for today as if it was written today. This is what we believe. But we believe the Bible is designed not to just merely inform us, but to transform our lives. So if if we suddenly memorize the 66 books of the Bible, we know the authors of all of them, and we know that uh, who the kings were and, and the separation of the kingdoms, and we understand the prophets, and we understand the historical context of the Gospels, and it doesn't change your life, it's meaningless. The Bible is designed for transformation. The goal of the new man is to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, we don't, we don't gather as a church to be taught. We gather to be transformed. And your life should be different with Jesus. Paul is beginning with this premise that if, you, uh, if your, your, your life is not impacted by the gospel, you need to check to see if you've embraced the gospel. This is the power of what Paul is saying. I want you to go back to the road to Damascus, right? The author is Paul. This is, uh, his name was what? Yeah, this is Saul, right? I want you to just think about that moment. Here is Saul, and he's used to memorizing scripture. He's used to being in control. He's used to understanding the uh, details of the law. He's also used to persecuting people if they didn't measure up to his standard. And if they didn't measure up to his standard, he would persecute them. He would persecute them to the point of killing them. The Bible says that they would go house to house, breathing threatenings to people who were not measuring up. And one day Jesus, God Almighty, blinds him, right? On the road to Damascus it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? Not the people, what does he say? Why do you persecute me? Your, your destructive habits and behaviors towards the people of God are actually against me. Why do you persecute me? What if he met Jesus and God on that day and, and had this life-changing, life-changing experience and God goes away and he goes to the next town and simply keeps doing what he's doing? Would we say that's transformation? No, he was simply informed, wasn't he? He was informed about God. He was informed about his behavior, but nothing changed. So Paul is really trying to get us to understand that the truth about Jesus, embracing it, is not about being informed, but being transformed. So what does it look like? What does out with the old and in with the new 
look like? Well, there's several things it looks like. Um, Let's see here. Let's look at verse 25. Let's keep reading. Verse 25 says this. Therefore, each of you must put off, this is the first one, falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are members of one body. Well, that sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Right? So the first one he says is this. We are to put off lies and instead... In comes truth. Out comes lies. In comes truth. This is the very first thing. If we are one body and we are members of one body, there's no place for lying. It encourages every other sin known to man. If you begin lying, you will begin sinning in other ways. This is why it's so important. This is why it begins the list. He encourages, it encourages every other sin. It encourages us to hide, to scheme, to manipulate Manipulate, the second one is on there as well. He says it's out with anger and in with peace. Look at verse 26. He says this, in your anger, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. You ever heard that before? It's because it's in the Bible. Isn't that great? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Look at how he clarifies that in verse 27. Do not give the devil a foothold. You see that it's part of the same sentence in verse 26? So, here's the sentence. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. What does he mean there? He means this, that if you give place to anger, you're giving place to the devil in that relationship. If you harbor anger, what does that mean to harbor anger? Well, uh, if you're talking about ships, a harbor provides safety, right? It provides a place for that ship to rest. If you harbor anger, that means this. In your life, you're making your life a safe place for anger to rest. You, keep, you, you take care of it. You keep anger safe. And what Paul is saying is this. If you give place to anger, you're giving place to the devil. So, out with anger, in with peace. What happens when you get angry? Where does your anger lead to? Now, for all of us, this might look a little different. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we let go of wrath so that we do not give the opportunity to the devil to further wreak havoc in our relationships. One of the titles to the devil, one of his titles is this, the accuser. And his job is to accuse and divide the family of God and to sow discord. And so when we harbor anger, we do the devil's work for him. So we go out with anger, in with peace. Let's look at the next one. Out with what? Theft and in with generosity. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says this. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So it's out with theft, in with generosity. Paul's idea is this, and the idea of Scripture is this. The the, the reason why we work is so that we can give it away. It's in the Bible. A couple months ago, I read through Proverbs, and I started charting every verse that had to do with money. 
I had a friend of mine who was asking some money questions, who's also a follower of God, and I said, hey, let's just read through Proverbs. Let's chart every verse on money. Let's come back, and let's figure out what the Bible says about money. And it was a very interesting read. I would challenge you to do so. Every time you see one, just write that verse down in a book, and then, and then go through and develop some, some principles based on those Proverbs. And you will be not shocked, because I already told you, But the Bible teaches that the whole reason we work hard, the whole reason we gain wealth, the whole reason we accumulate wealth is so that we can be generous to others. We're called to be generous people. That means we don't hesitate to help if it's in our power to do so. That gets difficult, doesn't it? Well, Daniel, what if they don't deserve my help? I don't know where that verse is. Well, what if, what if they just misuse my help? We're still called to be generous. We're called to help in every situation if we are in the power to do so. So we go out with theft, in with generosity. I would go as far to say this. If you are in a, power, if you are in a position to help and you refuse to do so, you grieve the very heart of God. We're called to be generous. I like how Paul uh, describes it, too. He says this. If you've been stealing, just stop stealing, right? But then he says, anyone who, must be, who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. I feel like that's the verse for our day and age, right? <laughs> you ought to work. Doing something useful with your hands so that you have something to share with those in need. We are called to work. We're called to do things. We're called to produce things, not so that we can hoard our wealth, not so that we can look down at others that don't have it, but that's so that we can be generous. The purpose for getting is giving. So the purpose of earning income, the purpose of accumulating wealth is so that we can help those who need it. So the next one's already on here. It's what? Out with what? And in with? All right, help me out one more time. Out with? And in with? We can skip this one. None of us have a problem with gossip. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. There's no place for gossip. There's no place for gossip. And by God's grace, our church will be a place that simply does not tolerate gossip. With Christ, the new comes in, and that's this, we watch our tongues. Um, I like going on missions trips because I like to use power tools. Because they teach me how to use them on mission strips. So we get to build things, right? The last time we went to Mexico City, we, uh, we got to build a bunch of new tables. And so you get these tools, and you learn how to work with these tools. And the purpose of those tools is to build something that you didn't have before. And it's such a sat- satisfying experience to begin the day with a bunch of lumber and then a bunch of tools and to on the first day, end with still a bunch of lumber and a bunch of tools, because we couldn't figure out what we're doing. But 
three days later to see that lumber turn into something that is useful. You see that word that Paul uses? Something that's useful. You know what a hammer can do? Well, you can do a couple of things, right? You can destroy something with a hammer. Or you can build something with a hammer. And Paul's saying this. You have words and you have options. Your words can destroy people or they can build people up. And here's the thing. You decide. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Don't let anything out of your mouth that would destroy, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. If you see someone that looks discouraged, you have the power to build that person up with words of encouragement. If you see someone who's lonely, you have the power with your words to speak life and friendship in their life. If you see someone that is without Jesus, you have the opportunity to introduce them to Jesus and to build them up. Your words have the power you get to choose. There's so many ways to grieve the Holy Spirit, but Paul describes to us one of them, and that is this, with our language. Our language and conversations with our loved ones can be one of those places if we don't lean into the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of meat in this text. Can you hear that? We could spend a whole week on each one of these. We're going to go to the fifth one. Out with revenge. Everyone say revenge. revenge. Now say it like a villain in a Disney movie. Revenge. Or in with forgiveness. Look at verse 31. Get rid of most of your bitterness. Some of your rage... And a little bit of your anger. No. Paul, Paul just gives it to us. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. And here's what you do and said. Be kind. Be compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Aristotle defined bitterness this way, the resentful spirit that refuses reconciliation. He talks about bitterness, he talks about rage. This is, this is um, the outburst of the moment. Everything's going fine, and then something happens, and you have a moment, right? That's rage. Anger is, is this... Uh, this this ever-present way of living where you're constantly on edge. And all of these behaviors listed in verse 31 are reactions that are rooted in revenge because we want the other person, the other party, the other person in the relationship to pay for their offense. So we will get angry. We will get bitter because if I'm bitter, it'll hurt them. Nah, poison's the... Our bitterness is the poison that you intend for your enemy and you drink for yourself. So instead, we will forgive. Boy, by God's grace, I pray that our church family is a place, place where people experience forgiveness. You see, our forgiveness to others is to be patterned after the forgiveness of Jesus towards us. 
When we think of the amazing way God forgives us, it is shameful for us to withhold forgiveness from those who have wronged us. God holds back his anger a long time until he forgives. He bears with us for a long time, though we sorely provoke him. And in his forgiveness, he bore all the penalty for the wrong we did against him. He was innocent, yet he bore the guilt. And God keeps reaching out to us with forgiveness. There's a lot here, isn't there, in Ephesians 4. Paul says this, man, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's time for it to show up in your relationships. It's time for us not to put Sunday morning on a shelf that only, or our life on Sunday morning where it only appears for an hour and a half each week. But it needs to show up every single time. So all of these different places, this is where it shows up. Not to be informed, but to be transformed. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we will be that people that say, out with lies, in with truth. We will be truthful. We will be honest. We will tell each other the truth in love. We will be out with theft and in with generosity. We will be known as people who are generous, as people that will want to give when giving is necessary, when it's needed. We're going to be out with gossip and in with encouragement. We're not going to be a place where people tear each other down, but where we lift each other up, where we don't talk about people, but we serve people, where we don't look at each other uh, downly and say, oh my goodness, they must be going through a difficult time. Oh my goodness, did you see that? Oh my goodness, this. No, we're going to be those people that rush to people with love and grace and encouragement. And then we're going to be people that say out with revenge, or we're going to forgive people. I want you to think about someone who has spent much of their life incarcerated. They don't like living in prison, but they've gotten used to it. They've gotten used to the food. They've gotten used to the schedule. They've gotten used to the routine, the steel bed frame, the cold interiors. They've gotten used to the prison clothes. This is their life. And then one day out of the blue, they're released. They're granted freedom. And all of a sudden, they don't have to wear the prison uniforms anymore. They don't have to sit and be arranged by the schedule or routine that's imposed on them. They, uh, they get a big, comfy mattress. They get to eat all the foods they've thought about. And with all these choose choices, how tragic would it be for someone to willingly choose to put that uniform back on? How tragic would it be for someone to choose um, can I just extend my stay here a little bit longer because I really like the amenities? Can I stay here a little bit longer because I like the schedule and I really like the people I've gotten uh, acquainted with and it's, and it's quite nice, it's quite pleasant actually. We would ask that person, do you know you've been freed? Why would you choose to live this way? Why would you continually put on that prison uniform if you've been freed, if your chains have been gone? And what Paul is saying here is this. You're free. You don't have to live in shackles anymore. The lies, the resentment, the revenge, the theft, the dishonesty, all of those are, that's the old. Don't you know you've been freed? Don't you know that you have been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Don't you know that Christ died on your cross and you have the opportunity to embrace it? And though as dirty as you might feel, as dirty as you might be, in Christ you are clean. So I want you to think about that the next time you choose to gossip.
the next time you choose to lie, the next time you choose to steal, the next time you choose to embrace revenge over forgiveness. Because God in heaven is pleading with us to recognize you've been freed and you don't have to live like that anymore. There's freedom in front of you. You get to walk in this newness of life. I'm so excited that we're in Ephesians 4. Because addressing these kinds of things, these are what Paul is urging us to consider. That we have been reborn, we have been redeemed, and we have been restored. Jesus Jesus isn't merely adding to our old life, but the old life dies and we become new. Are you living in the old or in the new? Are you living a life of freedom while wearing those prison clothes? How about this? What needs to be put out and what needs to be brought in today? Let's bow for a word of prayer as we rest here. Your heads are bowed for a moment. If you're watching online, I'd encourage you to just take this space to bow right there where you're seated. Let's embrace the truths that God has spoken to us today. Boy, he's a good, good father. And he has so much for us to live. It's the abundant life he's called us to. And this idea of going out with the old and in with the new is simply embracing the life that God has intended for you. Your heads are bowed for just a moment as we consider these thoughts. You remember Jesus, he's sitting down and he's with Nicodemus and Nicodemus understands the law. He understands everything there is to know about scripture, the law, the Torah. And Jesus simply says to him, boy, to inherit eternal life, you must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't quite understand it, and so Jesus unpacks that for a moment, and he says, Verily, very, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. He says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. This is the life God always intended for you. In the New Testament, he talks about this life. He says, you have the opportunity before you. Death and life. And he says, choose life. Choose life. This is the life he's called you to. If you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, this is the life he's called you to. One of forgiveness, one of restoration, one of redemption, one of letting the old die so that the new can live. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you've never placed your trust in him, today's the day. I invite you to come to Jesus. Embrace salvation. Start a new life today because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me, because in him was life. And God made him, 
Jesus to be our sin so that we might inherit in his righteousness. Man, the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, if you've never placed your trust in Christ, I would encourage you today. If you're watching online, please message us and let us know. We'd love to begin this walk with you. We'd love to explain what it means to be baptized into the family of God to begin this life. We would love to gift you a brand new Bible so that you can walk in this new life. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to introduce you to a group of people who would love to cheer you on. And if you're sitting here in the auditorium, we would love to do the same for you. If you've never placed your trust in Christ, today's the day. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we have been called to live a life that has new traditions in it. And the new traditions are these. Boy, we are going to live and walk in truth. We're going to live and walk in peace and in generosity and encouragement and forgiveness. So in this moment while you're sitting there, I want you to think through what needs to be put out and what needs to be brought in. The music's going to play. Our worship team's going to come forward so they can lead us in worship. But right now is the most important time right before we take communion. In just a few moments, we're going to take communion. And what that means is it's a time for us to honor and to celebrate the gift of life. We get to honor his body and his blood. And wouldn't this be a great time to clean up what's in your heart? What do you need to put out? What needs to be brought in? Take a moment. Cleanse and purify your heart. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.